We're going to take a look at the communion today in a general way. Uh, we've taken a look at the exhortation, which includes the examination, and we took a look at that for just uh, a little bit. Uh, there is, right before the exhortation in the Augustana uh, service book and hymnal, uh, the rubrics that say, a hymn may then be sung. If there is no communion, the service continues with the salutation, the benedicamus, and the benediction. And so, this rubric says, uh, um, if there's no communion, you, you skip over that, you go to the end and have a prayer, and and go home. Uh, what, a, what about this option, or that which is... Uh, normally done regarding the Lord's Supper, the communion itself. For our Lord instituted uh, the Lord's Supper on the night in which he was betrayed, that Monday, Thursday evening. Uh, Following Pentecost, we have Acts chapter 2, verse 42, which lets us know with the Holy Spirit coming and the church beginning, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. The breaking of bread was not potlucks, but the Lord's Supper, uh, using that uh, term for the whole thing, for the Lord's Supper itself. Uh, The early church continued uh, to, to do that in... Strodok's book, he says, the practice of the early church was to gather for Holy Communion. That and the hearing of the word were their prime objectives. This practice continued in every land and age. Neither the reformers nor the Reformation movement attacked or objected to its every Lord's Day use, but only to the superstitions and ad abominations of the mass practices. Its celebration every Lord's Day is still found in some parts of the Church of the Reformation to this day. Whatever good or indifferent reasons may have brought about the once or twice or four or six time a year practices in the country in years gone by, they hardly obtain now. To reach the richest fund of spiritual blessing and inspiration, the church must use every privilege at every possible opportunity. So this practice of holding Lord's Supper uh, on each Lord's Day uh, is not uh, a foreign idea. It's not something that began with even with the Reformation itself, but goes back to uh, the early church. In Reed's book, he goes on to say, the service in Lutheran use corresponds to the divine liturgy of the Eastern Church and the Mass of the Roman Church. The German name for it is the Hauptgottesdienst, Its unique character and importance are indicated in the English title by the significant word, the, as in the 
the divine service. More than any other form of worship, its root it roots itself in our Lord's own example and command, and its complete form it enshrines both word and sacrament. How we describe uh, the the service, the service, um, the Eastern Church uh, called it the divine liturgy, the divine liturgy, uh, the Roman Church uh, had used the term the Mass, the Lutheran Confessions sometimes use it uh, in a positive way, sometimes in a negative way, but uh, uh, the German Church, Gottesdienst, Dienst is the word for service, God's service, and the Haupt is the head. The head God service, or the chief divine service, that's what it is. It stands at the head of the week. It stands at the first day of the week, at the early morning, on Sunday morning. Uh, this is where it, it, it starts. Um, and so that's why often it's this um, terms like worship. Uh, we're going to have worship. We're going to have divine service. Um, divine service emphasizes God's service to us, as opposed to worship is often uh, <coughs> an emphasis upon our service to Him, what what we're going to go to give. And uh, Lutherans, you can always tell, uh, their emphasis upon what they're doing at church is, I'm going to get something. That is, God's given out in the divine service. He's giving me stuff. He's giving me his word. He's giving me his body and blood. He's giving me this stuff. Um, I receive it with prayer and thanksgiving, for sure. But it's not about my worship, what I come to give him. It's about receiving what he gives to us. What we call the service is not a nondescript collection of devotional forms. It has but one theme, and that is the loftiest. It lives to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, and through it to reveal God to the world. So, the service, what does it want to do? It wants to proclaim Jesus Christ and give it out. It lives to offer the Holy Sacrament for the spiritual comfort and strengthening of believers. It lives to express the faith, gratitude, and the joy of Christian communities. As the church's normal order of worship on the Lord's Day, it is unique, purposeful, powerful. In its several parts and in its totality, it builds up a towering majesty of thought and expression which exceeds that of any liturgical form in the church's use. Sooner or later... Every important and constantly repeated action takes on a definite and a significant form. Even the highest spiritual values are best expressed and grasped when embodied in appropriate form. That is, if something is important, you fix it. You say, this is the way it's going to be. 
whether it is the church over time coming to a particular order and saying these things are most important, we're going to make sure that they happen by having a fixed form for them, or whether it is in uh, secular ways in which there is going to be a inauguration and a laying on the hand of, of the holy book and, and professing, or whether there is going to be a time in which you say the Pledge of Allegiance or you sing the national anthem, it's, it's, it's kind of fixed. It's set down because of the importance that it is. Um, and that's what the liturgy has done. How did it happen? Well, the process was, was quite different from the way in which many worship programs are assembled today. The service of the church was not privately prepared. No man or group of men set out to analyze and arrange in order the emotions and acts which should enter into a well-balanced program and then prepare appropriate forms to express these emotions and intentions in acts of worship. So we, we didn't take a look and say, well... You know, what, what, what kind of things should, should we intend to do? And, and, and how will this bring forth emotions in you? Um, we're not going to work you up to a certain thing. No, the liturgy is the work of the whole church. It grew naturally, as did the creeds, the confessions, the great hymns, and even as the Holy Scriptures themselves kind of grew. It was born not of philosophy, but of faith. There can be psychology, it may analyze the elements, there may be a logic, even as we take a look at its parts and see what they do, but neither really had much to do with its origin and a development. The earliest forms of the liturgy developed from the efforts of groups of believers to do a few simple things. They desired to perpetuate in a vital manner the communion with Christ, which the first disciples had known in the flesh, and through Christ unitedly to commune with the Father in heaven. Obedience to our Lord's commands with reference to baptism and the Holy Supper, the endeavor to provide opportunities for instruction, instructing the catechumens and the faithful led to readings from the scriptures, hymns, prayers, actions, which which presently assume more or less a permanent form. Word and sacrament were the core about which the expressions of adoration, <coughs> confession, petition, intercession, and thanksgiving gradually developed. What was considered important? What was considered important was that which was the word, which God wanted us to teach, and what he told us to do was to baptize and to do this in remembrance of me. And so the church wished to uh, go about doing these things. And, and that's how it went together. In fact, when we talk about the divine service, there's been times where I told you, I said, well, this part is kind of preparatory. This is the service of the word. And this is the service of the sacrament. But this service of the word and this service of the sacrament, they, they didn't develop separately. It's not that they would have one at one time and one at another, and then later in time, all of a sudden, we put them together. 
they always went together. That's the way things normally went. You preached the Word and taught the Word, and that led you to want to receive the sacrament. Because that's where it was. We will find that the preaching of the Word was a general, of course, it was given out, it was to be taught. And then there was the specific of the Lord's Supper where you gave it out individually what you had been preaching about so that these two things go together. Time of the Reformation. The Reformation's rediscovery of the sacrament. The medieval errors and abuses which called for reform and the program and processes of that reform have already been discussed. In rediscovering the gospel, the Lutheran Reformation rediscovered the sacrament. In rediscovering the gospel and the sacrament, it rediscovered the purpose of the liturgy. These discoveries resulted in the development of a liturgical movement which purified, enriched, and empowered the worship of the church. The teaching of the Lutheran church with respect to the sacrament developed on an avenue of discussion with the Roman Catholics on one side and the Zwinglians and the Calvinists on the other. Some of Luther's personal intensity of conviction and expression are evident in the great emphasis laid by the church on penitence and confession upon the individualization of the gift of grace and the personal assurance of salvation enjoyed by the individual communicant. But the Lutheran doctrine, however, has a broader base than this. It rests upon the Lutheran conception of the gospel as comprehending both the audible and the visible word. Yes. Would you say something more, please, about the individualization of the gift of grace? So, what Luther was, uh, what what he was mentioning is that Luther spent quite a bit of time uh, in his preaching and teaching that we might receive the church's proclamation individually by faith. It was not simply a matter of, oh, well, I'm sitting with a group of people. That's good enough. The priest is doing something, that's okay. That we might believe and trust in it. You're saved by faith. He's saying, but the Lutheran church itself, yes, we we don't deny that. But the Lutheran church itself, in its broader base, saw that the gospel included, and it says, both the audible and the visible word. The audible word is the preaching, the teaching, the reading. At other times, we will talk about the sacraments and talk about them having the same purpose as the word, and yet they are visible, word and and water, word and bread and wine, uh, talking about the visible. In the audible word of scripture, the liturgical services, the sermons, etc., the love, the mercy, and the goodness of God are proclaimed to all men. In the visible word of the sacrament, they are applied individually in the forgiveness and grace given the worshiper through the gift of the body and blood of Christ received in faith. (coughs) Both of those. How many times do you hear Lutherans talk about word and sacrament? 
Yeah, just like our divine service word. What do we? What do you find in? He talks about in in Zwingli and Calvinist congregations. Worship. That's basically what I give, whatever. Uh, Lord's Supper? No. No. Both ways. Not so much. Not so much. In fact, in many of those, I was talking with someone the other day, you know, how's that? And they go, well, yeah, now our church only does it once a year. Um, Word. Sacrament. Hmm. Interesting. If they only do it once a year, what does it even mean to them? Like, what do they say it means to them? Um, most of the time, with it not being the body and blood and not giving forgiveness, it's simply something that uh, uh, a Christian performs periodically to show God my seriousness. That's about it. About. Um, not always, but about. I've had uh, someone tell me that they did <coughs> Lord's Supper. I don't think they call it that, but um, when the pastor felt like the congregation needed it or was ready to do it, something along the lines. Yeah, yeah. Tony? But Luther said that a person needs to take communion four times a year. He didn't seem to, I mean, like if you're going to be a Christian you know, and believe, you need to do this four That's a little bit confusing. Good. Um, you got to make sure you get that quote right. It's the large catechism. And Luther is talking about those who despise the sacrament. Um, they did offer Lord's Supper every Sunday. Now, Luther was very careful that you didn't force people to communion and Lord's Supper. He said that, you know, this is something we offer. Um, he said, now, if we offer this and we teach you the great importance of it, and that's hopefully what I'm going to get to you for today, the great importance of it. He said, you will press me to, to, to give it out. And the actual quote in the large catechism, and I've had that quoted to me, I don't know how many times, I don't know why people know and remember that one. But the actual quote is, Luther says, if a person doesn't commune at least four times a year, I question whether he's a Christian. Now, that's a different from offer it four times, or you only need to take four times, or you only... But but he's just... I mean, it, it's no... You know, there's no set thing with this, but he's at least kind of giving you a ballpark kind of thing, saying, listen, you ought to be taken. I mean, when this says do this, um, hey, Brian... And boy, and then, so the, the Reformed take communion and Reformed baptism out of an act of Yes. Christ said do it, so we're going to do it, but it really doesn't. It's just we're being obedient. It is obedience. Mm -hmm. It is obedience, not to receive. Patty? Yeah, I was just thinking, okay, if you take it it once a year, you're only celebrating uh, Christmas and Easter and all the other holidays once a year. So why don't you celebrate it more than once a year? But... When the says take the sacraments at least four times a year, that's keeping you thinking and remembering and going on with your belief. 
least four times a year. You've kind of got it throughout the year. At least seasonal, kind of. Yeah, it's kind of. It has changed over Lutheran in, in Lutheran, especially in America. And so, at the time this is written, he he says things like, "There are still places where this happens," because it wasn't happening in in America. And, and it, it and some of it has to do with circumstances. Some of it has to do with a circuit writer and someone having to get there, and you didn't have a pastor. And when he got there, you had it. Some of it had to do with um, other ideas. Uh, finally, they decided, you know, uh, that when uh, the men were going off to war, they had 30 days to report. We ought to have it at least, you know, we were having it four times a year. We ought to have it at least once a month because then the people get Lord's Supper before they go. I mean, there can be all kinds of things. It's interesting over time, though, and and this has really happened only in the last uh, 30 years or so, this return to an every Sunday communion, the, the, the importance of it. Pastor? Well, in the first place, I think Luther's quote says he... He should wonder whether he's a Christian or not. It's not that not that the preacher should wonder. He should wonder. Are you really a Christian if you don't partake of the sacrament? The other thing is that in this whole in this whole discussion, the individual has to go to communion. How often? Yeah, that's what we're talking about. If Luther says, if Luther says in the way we think he says it, how often do we have to go to communion? How often can we go to communion? That, no, now you're changing. You're changing what I'm saying. You see, Luther says you got to go to communion four times a year, right? Wrong. How, how often? How often does the church offer communion? <laughs> on Sundays, saints days, and holy days, and any time that is desired, I believe is the way it's said. Yeah, okay. So the, 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 what, what we're talking about in this discussion is how often does the church offer communion? And also included in that is why does it do it? Because we, we read up here a little earlier that the, the sacraments offer the same grace that the gospel does. Somebody else is going to have to find that because I. Brian? Well, since I'm a sinner and i got a lot to do, if you're only going to offer it four times or once a year, that's really all I need to go to church. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so I knew I could get you. I knew I could get your feathers ruffled, and I knew I could get you to uh, um, rag upon the Reformed. Well, that's not hard. <laughs> so, now, if, 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 if the Reformed have the Word and the sacraments, the other Luther was dealing with was the Roman Church. How does the Roman Church deal with the Word and the Sacrament? The Word and Sacrifice. The Word and Sacrifice. Well, and they, as far as are the parishioners, they kind of deal with it in the same way because they treat it as an obligation. Do they not? Mm-hmm. They make it law just like the Reform. Word and Sacrament. Roman Church? Sacrament. Tony? 
Tony Prohaska, <laughs> how much teaching of the word did you get? Well, oh, they don't, they do flip it, don't they? I think that's a fair amount, not, not as much as here. But it was a drummer in my head that if I didn't go to communion once a year, I was a fallen away Catholic. You will find that on the other side, the Roman Church has the sacrament uh, way up here and the word down here. The amount of teaching that is received is, well, you, you, you go to the you go to the mass. Okay, so I went. Did you learn something there? Well, well I went to the mass. Well, well what do you preach? Well, I don't know what you know. But I went. Uh, you know. What well, is there Bible study? Well, no, we didn't have Bible study. We didn't have teaching. Well, no, we didn't have. You had, on the other hand, this. And at Luther's time, yes, what was going on? Not only was there daily offering of the sacrament, sacrament, the mass, the thing. Um, there were priests that were offering it individually. One priest in a room by himself with an altar, and he would run through the the thing. That was considered here. You remember when we started this, where Luther came along and said that we got we got services and there was no preaching. <coughs> you went no preaching, but there was the mass. There was. So, you also had this. Uh, this is usually the part where I bring up the Saxon visitation, if I remember correctly, this mm-hmm. discussion, is that Luther started going around, I believe when he became a, I don't, I don't remember, anyway, let's not get crazy, but the point is, he started figuring out that a bunch of the priests didn't even know the Lord's Prayer, because partially the way that it was handled in his day, right, was that the, the priests were sons of people, and it was given as a benefit, I believe is the right yep, word. they paid for it. And so they were going and doing this sacrifice in the Mass, which was checking off a box for them and other people. But they had not been taught. They had no actual desire to be a priest in many cases. And the people didn't come because they didn't know why they should come. It was a whole mess. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Luther actually put together, actually he sent Bugenhagen around doing the visitation, but... Um, uh, he also put together a book, a sermon book. He said, at least you can read this sermon. You don't have your own. You can't. Question? Um, I asked my dad one time um, about, you know, did, did they study the Bible? I mean, he went through Catholic school, all through high school, and into college. And, and he said, no, um, that, that they studied the Bible when they went to church, what what was offered in church service. That was but but they did not do it, you know, like open up the Bible and do, you know, Bible study or it just wasn't it wasn't encouraged. I found to the Catholic Catholic homilies or sermons are not terrifying until until they've been taught. Until then, it's, well, I just need to do better. Okay, yeah, I can do that. Okay. okay. But then once once you become taught or you learn about grace and faith, suddenly the homilies are not, not just, oh, I need to do better. It's, oh, no. That's unattainable. Tony? Yeah, I must have been taught something because I knew all of the Bible stories that I've heard here. Plus, 
they spent an awful lot of time on the lives of the saints, which we don't talk about here, which was evidently we were supposed to be emulating them. Also, been in Lutheran Bible studies, well, I got so mad I would have thrown a book at the person. The first one was uh, there in Champaign. She took me before we were engaged. They were discussing the Good Samaritan. And one lady in the church said, the congregation said, but do I really have to be a Good Samaritan to all these people? And the pastor up there waffled along through it and I said, you just missed the whole point. <laughs> you can't, no, I, you don't have to be a good Christian if you, well, I'll end it with uh, what uh, Shaw says. I love humanity, but it's the individuals that can't stand. <laughs> <laughs> Can't find the one I'm looking at. All right. So I've given you five minutes to uh, complain about the Reformed, but they're not here. And I gave you five minutes to complain about the Roman Catholics, but they're not here either. Um, so I guess we're going to have to look at ourselves. That's going to take at least ten minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and then we're done. We don't want to look at ourselves anymore. What, what do we find? Well, yes, and I and I think it is. I mean, you do have to recognize what when we talk about word and sacrament that these two things are dual and they go together and and they ought to and one ought to lead to the other. Uh, uh, in both ways, although particularly the word ought to lead to the Lord's Supper itself. Um, in the sheet that you have in front of you, uh, Augsburg Confession, Article 24, uh, when they were dealing with some of the problems that were going on within the church and corrections that they have made, the Lutherans start off with saying, we are unjustly accused of having abolished the Mass. Yeah, we said a lot of things that we said were wrong about the way you were doing it and what you were doing, but we haven't abolished it at all. Without boasting, it is manifest that the Mass, and if you want to put together with that, the service of Lord's Supper, you know, the service with Lord's Supper in it, what we have in the Sunday morning, that it is observed among us with greater devotion and more earnestness than among our opponents. The, there are times that the Lutheran confessions prescribe or say, this ought to happen. There are other times that the Lutheran confessions describe the Lutheran Church, and says, this is the way things are. Um, there's sometimes when it says, we ought to have, you know, in our churches, we have Lord's Supper, you know, Sundays and, and, and whatever. Does that describe us? Well, it describes our congregation. Yes, we're, we're following that. Does it have to be? Well, no, there are going to be those who, who are not able to do that, or people who can't come. When this describes the church, does it describe you? 
without boasting, it is manifest, the Mass is observed among us with greater devotion and more earnestness than among our opponents. Do, do I go about worship with greater devotion and more earnestness? Do I give attention to this as if it is what it really is, God coming to meet with us? Um, someone told me the other day, I, I said, come on to church. You know, well, I, you know, I, I only want to wear jeans. I go, fine, wear jeans. Well, I don't know why you guys always get dressed up. <laughs> we believe we're meeting with God. He's coming to visit us. Um, if someone important comes, you, know, you, you want to receive him as such. Um, do you make sure that you're paying attention? Or is this like a show? Um, do you prepare yourself to receive what what is being given out? Is there great earnestness? Are you working at this, your worship? And is you devoted to these things? I, I want to hear what the sermon says. I'm, I'm desiring to receive Lord's Supper. Um, or are you saying, yeah, Christmas meal. What time is that? How can I get out of here quickly? Um, moreover, the people are instructed often and with great diligence concerning the Holy Sacrament, why it was understood, how it is to be used, namely as a comfort for terrified consciences, in order that the people may be drawn to the communion and mass. Are we drawn to it? Do we wish to receive uh, this? You know, there's instructions. Yes, there's your own hymn. Yes, the purpose of this. We're offering it uh, um, uh, on holy days and on other days when communicants are present. Mass is held for those who desire it and are uh, communicated. Um, it goes on to talk about, thus the Mass is preserved among us in its proper use, the use which was formerly observed in the church, which can be proved from Paul's St. Paul's statement. They go back to 1 Corinthians 11, many statements of the Father's. He does go on to say, for Chrysostom, this is a, a third, fourth century uh, pastor, bishop, reports how the priest stood every day inviting some to communion and forbidding others to approach. And, and so at that time, he was offering this uh, communion. The ancient canons indicate that one man officiated and communicated the other priests and deacons. Uh, the words of the Nicene Creed read, After the priest, the deacon shall receive the sacrament in order. Um, it wasn't always uh, uh, this way. Uh, granted, there may not have been uh, at each time as it, uh, every day, but it does go on. It talks about in times past, even in large churches where there were many people, Mass wasn't held on every day that the people assembled. For according to the Tripartite History, Book 9, on Wednesdays and Fridays, the scriptures were read and expounded, and that these services were held without uh, Mass. So there were, as Lutherans had word and sacrament, there were times to come and hear the word. There were times when you taught it like catechesis service. Well, it's not Lord's Supper. Right. So it's not that it happened all but we wanted to make sure that there was always word and and sacrament and, and the importance of it. One more thing, and then I'll go. Apology, when uh, they responded to this, 
they come back, the Lutherans say, at the outset, we must make the preliminary statement, we do not abolish the Mass, but religiously maintain and defend it. Um, maybe you've heard uh, Roman Catholics that, you know, they've said, oh yes, you're just Roman Catholic light. You know, um, you know, in some ways I would say, yes, we have less ceremonies than, than they do because some of them needed to be eliminated. Sorry, they, they taught wrongly. Um, we're not going to invoke the saints or, or pray to the Virgin Mary. On the other hand, it doesn't mean that we take church half as serious as the Roman church. For among us, masses are celebrated every Lord's Day and on other festivals in which the Lord in which the sacrament is offered to those who wish to use it after they have been examined and absolved. The usual public ceremonies, series of lessons, prayers, vessels, and other things. Why? Because of the importance of the Lord's Supper and, and what it gives out. Rachel. I think perhaps it's very difficult for us in our modern civilization and um, where we don't view someone's word as binding. It's very, we have a very lawsuit happy society. We have a very um, not trustworthy society that we live in. Just because you say something doesn't mean you're actually going to do it at all. That's definitely not the case anymore. Um, 500 years ago, I think they took it a bit more seriously, I would hope, but certainly in the Old Testament, this is the this is the agreement between God and you, and that's exactly what the sacrament is. That's why you should want it. It is the reminder that God has promised you something, namely salvation, and it's your reminder every Sunday that that's what is being given to you. And for all of the teaching about the Old Testament that I got with the uh, with the people at Christian Fellowship, they had no comprehension that the New Testament is what was being given in the Lord's Supper. They didn't understand that at all. And it's kind of sad because it's so deeply important to the faith and life of a Christian to have that assurance. It's it's baptism, but we get it every Sunday. It's that same assurance of God's promise to us. I'll never remember, I'll never forget when Benjamin was confirmed around Easter time, the Easter vigil, And then the very first time we went on vacation, um, you know, which was probably June, so it was two or three months later or something like that. And we went on vacation and we went into a congregation we were in fellowship with and, and, you know, I had talked with them ahead of time, you know, if you go somewhere where you're going to commune, you need to talk to the pastor ahead of time and, uh, you know, let him know that you are a member in good standing and, and, and all. Um, we got into, you know, so I, I prepared him ahead of time for this. We got into church and uh, took a look, grabbed the bolt and took a look, and they were having the order of matins that morning. <coughs> and kind of, hmm, order of matins. I go, well, there's not Lord's Supper this, this morning. Benjamin looked at me and he goes, what do you mean? <laughs> you know, I mean, here's a newly confirmed person. He's able to take Lord's Supper. This is, you know, and, 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 and I said, well, well, they, they, they don't have it this morning. And, uh, and he, he, he thought about it. You know, we were sitting in the pew and, uh, and, and then he leans and he goes, so why? 
<laughs> I go, well, you know, I don't know. I go, maybe, you know, maybe they, you know, maybe they didn't have time or something. <laughs> he goes, I got time. <laughs> and I, I, you know, and I, I don't know. I said something else. He goes, well, there's a pastor sitting up there. What's he doing? <laughs> And, and I, I mean, you know, uh, um, here is a great gift, and you know, when the people desire it, he had been taught concerning this, and this is something that he desired to uh, receive. Uh, Eric, so he talks about outwardly. Outwardly, it does seem that we are we take this a whole lot less serious than the Catholic Church. Why does that? Well, walk, in, walk into a Catholic church. Mm-hmm. Everybody is quiet, praying, kneeling. There's no chitter chatter. It's just focus. I mean, it's peaceful, quiet, and everybody's meditating. Now, inwardly, we're not so sure, but outwardly, <laughs> it appears so. I mean, but, 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 okay. I mean, outwardly, it appears so. They dress their pastors up. I'm not going to question that. I, I mean, the devote the. Being devoted and but taking it serious. Right uh, again, I want to be sure that there's right teaching, but no, yeah, I'm not going to quite, but you're right. You look and you kind of go, okay, outwardly, does that show as well? Um, you know, obviously, a, a, you know, shorts and a latte, uh, you know, for the pastor standing up front would probably not say this is serious. You know, just but our, our outward actions but, should reflect should reflect what's happening inwardly. Correct. Correct. The, um, this uh, large catechism, the second uh, backside of the page uh, that is here, it talks about how this nourishes and this strengthens us, particularly because of us being weary and faint and sometimes also stumble and, and, and all. Therefore, it is given as a daily pasture and sustenance that faith may refresh and strengthen itself so as not to fall back in such a battle, but become ever stronger and stronger. For the new life must be so regulated that it increases and and, uh, to continually increase and progress. But it must suffer much opposition. For the devil is such a furious enemy when he sees that we oppose him and attack the old Adam that he cannot topple us over by force. He prowls, moves about on all sides, tries all devices, does not desist until he finally wearies us so that we either renounce our faith or yield hands and feet and become listless or impatient. Now to this end, the consolation is here given. When the heart feels the burden is becoming too heavy, that it may here obtain new power and refreshment. Not so much does it speak of, of of devotion or of seriousness, but it it simply says when we realize what we are up against, when we realize what our condition is and all that is going up against us, that we would look to this and say, not that well, I really need to be serious. No, I, I this this. Because of the battle, I need to have these things. My seriousness and my devotedness is because of what is being given out. In conclusion, since we have now had the true understanding and doctrine of the sacrament, there is indeed a need of some admonition 
and exhortation that men may not let so great a treasure, which is daily administered and distributed among Christians, pass by unheeded. That is, that those who would be Christians make ready to receive this venerable sacrament often. That we might make ready to receive it, that we might see it as a great treasure, that we might rejoice in uh, the opportunity uh, to come and, and, and to take it. That's how it should change us uh, and, and uh, should, should go together, word and sacrament. I had a couple hands that... that well, I was going to say that I noticed here uh, among the different people and that I've been with here on the Catholic Church and my daughter also, is that they, uh, by having a lot of this quiet kind of a stuff that's going on, what happens is I am telling God what to do how to do it, and and all of the things that I believe I can pick and choose. I believe this, but I don't believe that, and that's what is it comes out. And then it's it's the fact that you're not they're not really being taught what's going on. It's an awful lot of thou shalt do this, this, that, and I heard that when I was teaching over there at OLMC where the pastor was asking about faith and they couldn't answer that question. And I mean, these are teachers, not students. Teachers. So we have both. And by and large, we make the church most Sundays. But we also have a bunch of services during the week. I mean, and I'm young, you go, well, i got 100 things to do in a job, I'm not going to make any of those. But then I'm going to get old, and I'll still have 100 things to do, and I'll be tired, and I'm not going to make it. Okay, so are we really are we really taking all the advantages that are there, or no? I think we all have to look at that. Um, and, and I think that's true. I, I would, <laughs> yeah. Um, Karn and I talk, we kind of go, yeah, when, you know, we're just too busy, but when we're retired, we'll have time. How come every retired person I talk to is super busy and doesn't have time? I don't know how this works. Do you know how this works? Because yeah. you move slower, for one thing. Yeah. They, they had more doctor's appointments. Yeah. 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 There you go. You don't know how you ever had time to go to work. And you're still Yeah, I don't understand it, but it has how it works. Yeah. Yeah. Lindemann, in his introduction to the Christmas uh has a, a very unique tongue-in-cheek uh, explanation. Uh, he goes, uh, whether in many churches the Holy Sacrament is celebrated only in one or the other of the Christmas services, not, not, not both, not either Christmas Eve or Christmas Day or, or maybe not at all, they, uh, but they are appointed, there are places to have it in both services. Some churches have even eliminated the Holy Communion entirely on Christmas Day. The reason is said to be that the members and children and visitors attend in unusual numbers and that the visiting non-members do not want to sit idle in the pews while the members communicate. So for the sake of people who attend once or twice during the year, God's saints are deprived of the Holy Sacrament. He says, a far simpler solution would be to arrange a special program for all who, even at Christmas, are in a hurry. 
and, and such a special service, the choir may sing to their heart's content. The organist play intermittently. The pastor can limit his ministry to a brief reading and a short prayer. A ceremony of candle lighting can be performed. In fact, any and every sentimental pettiness observed in churches that have no holy sacrament may be imitated. And this should satisfy the non-church and induce them to come again on Easter. (laughs) But the service is appointed by the church. The communion with its own set of propers is chiefly for the faithful. The Feast of the Holy Nativity is not an occasion to deprive the faithful of the Holy Communion for the sake of infrequent visitors. If the number of communicants is large, the celebration of both services is the partial answer. Christmas, the Mass of Christ's Day, is incomplete uh, without uh, the Eucharist. He does go on a little bit later, and uh, let's see here. The ancient church had to contend with the attractions and customs of the pagan world, just as we must today combat the secularization of Christmas. The second set of propers emphasizes that the Christians are not to be carried away with the world's use of Christmas, making it a holiday instead of a holy day. We need to have the wondrous story told in its full import, in its application to the souls of men, The old fathers took the message, Unto you is born this day a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and in the propers developed this text into the mightiest festival sermon. So that which is celebrated on Holy Day needs to be celebrated in the preaching of the word and in then the reception or the uh, administration uh, of the sacrament itself. In another place he says, whenever we are permitted to celebrate another Christmas, God confers a special favor on us by granting us to look into his fatherly heart. The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared. The grace of God is his kindness and benevolent disposition toward the sinner. On earth, peace to the men of God's goodwill. This grace of God has appeared for the salvation of all men. In the birth of the Christ child, God revealed to all sinners how he feels towards them. This child was born for all men. He was to save all without exception. As the sun shines on all, so God's son of grace was to shine on all in Christ Jesus. Of course, he was too proud or ashamed to acknowledge his sinfulness and helplessness. He who strives to be righteous before God by virtue of his own efforts receives no grace. This is only for people who have nothing to bring before God. This is only, uh, but all who come to the child in the manger with the conviction that nowhere but in him alone there is hope and salvation find grace. The lowliness and poverty of the babe are nothing but our guilt and misery, which he has taken upon himself. In all eternity it shall not touch us. This we must believe with all our heart when we come to the Lord's table to be united with our Savior. We are sinners and have accumulated a great debt before God, but this child was born to take away all our guilt and suffer our punishment. God became man 
that he might be able to die for the sins of the whole world. The body he took from the virgin, he gave for all on the cross, the very body he gives us in the holy sacrament today. The blood he shed for us, he gives us together with the wine to assure us that he came into this world also for us, that he died to pay our debts by giving us his body and blood together with the bread and wine. He declares that we too are reconciled with God, that we too are men of God's good will. He has put all his grace into the holy sacrament. Sinners need not search for it long, but have it close, uh, close to hand always. Our very presence at the Lord's table is a declaration on our part that we believe this. As often as we eat and drink to his memorial, we proclaim the Lord's death. By our eating and drinking, we declare he became man and gave himself for me, that he might redeem me from all iniquity. I renounce irreligion and worldly passions, awaiting my blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of my great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Blessed are all who receive the Holy Sacrament and so declare their confident faith in the grace that God has appeared to all men. Come then as pardoned and redeemed sinners and faithfully lay hold on forgiveness and grace that it will be truly Christmas. Then the glory of the Lord will shine in your hearts. The dark night of sin will be banished. And as happy children of the Heavenly Father, you may look for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. If the announcement of the word that teaches us about Jesus coming in his flesh and blood to take on flesh and blood in the Virgin Mary to be born of us, then if we believe in that which is his real presence, uh, what he gives us in the supper, we will see that these two services, word and sacrament, the teaching of the word would lead us to want to receive this so that what generally is announced to the congregation, now I take in through my mouth um, Christ himself. He unites himself with me. This being uh, the highest service that God gives to us. Once I have received, and you might say, there, there's a lot of things. There's a collect, and there's an introit, and there's readings, and there's a creed, and there's a sermon, and there's a preface, and there's an Augustine. And, there's a... and once we receive the Lord's Supper, it doesn't take long. You have a prayer, canticle, benediction, and you're out. Um, you get to distribution, it's almost over. Why? Because you've reached the pinnacle. You've hit it. Um, this is what we know uh, according to, and this is why we highly value uh, the, the divine service uh, as, uh, as the church provides it for us when we realize this great uh, treasure. This sacrament gathers into itself all the elements of the Christian gospel. No other act of worship contains them so completely. The work of Christ for the salvation of the world, the gracious will of God, in which the work of Jesus had its source, the forgiveness of sins, 
the hope of the life to come, the reality of the Christian fellowship that has grown out of Christ's work, all of these things come to expression in the sacrament. All of them are offered to the communicant. In the Lord's Supper, he he may hear God saying to him, all this is yours if you will but claim it as your own. Come, you might say receive it. The real presence of Christ with the bread and wine of the Eucharist presents no difficulties to faith. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again and is our living Lord and Savior, why should we not believe that he'd be really present where and as he will? If we believe that Christ who now lives is the same Jesus who endured the suffering of the cross, why should we doubt that his humanity as well as his divinity is present in and with the sacrament? If we believe that in the resurrection Christ's human body was transformed and became in Saul's St. Paul's phrase, a spiritual body, why should we stumble at the thought of a bodily presence? That in the Lord's Supper, Christ comes to us not only in a word that he spoke 1,900 years ago, but in his very person. That this Christ is the same Jesus who was with the twelve in the upper room on the night in which he was betrayed, who died upon a Roman cross and rose from a grave in Joseph's garden. That we may know him close to us, closer to us than breathing and nearer than hands or feet, that our souls can feel his nearness, our hearts go out to him in adoration, our lives be renewed by contact with his own. That is the meaning of the real presence, that we of times far distant from his own might be thus keenly conscious that he is with us. Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood. We who believe in this presence are sure that it is real. It's not contingent upon the faith of those who receive or those who administer the sacrament, but is for all alike, for believers and unbelievers, for the godly and the ungodly. It depends in no way upon our perception of it, but to those who are conscious of it, it becomes an additional assurance of the promise which the sacrament offers of forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation. It belongs to the sign by which our faith is strengthened and increased. And so it's the belief in the real presence that changes uh, the way that we view what God is is giving us, the way that we receive it, or as the uh, Augsburg Confession says, with greater devotion and more earnestness, uh, we, we, we come to it. That's an introduction, kind of a a start with it. We'll take a look at the beginnings of the uh, communion service itself with, with the next time. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you have taught us your word, and with that word you have taught us about what you are giving out, especially in the sacrament of the altar. We ask, dear Lord, uh, that in believing your real presence and the gift which faith receives, the forgiveness of sins, we ask that uh, our lives might show it in greater devotion and earnestness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.